Hello, and welcome to The Trumpet, the official podcast of Elephant Room Productions. As always, I am your host, Robert Jean Pelleccio, uh, joined for a rare in-person interview. Uh, a lot of, <laughs> you may have heard in the audio, a lot of our interviews tend to be phone, but thankfully, my playwright this month is a Philadelphia-based playwright. So thank you so much uh, for joining me, Caitlin Sieri. Thanks for having me, Rob. Um, so, before we jump in, as I always start the show, uh, we are going to be talking about a play that we are featuring of yours shortly, but if you could just kind of let us know a little bit about your theater background. Well, the thing that really got me into theater was playwriting. I always loved, um, you know, performing, acting, you know, telling stories, but when I was in eighth grade, I got involved in uh, Philadelphia Young Playwrights. They do playwriting workshops. Oh, I know, I know about them, yeah. Yeah, great group. So I got. I in- actually, I just weirdly enough just did a show with them. Um, they uh, it was called Heartbreak Ooh. Hotel. It was a series of uh, like ten minute pieces about um, all set in around a hotel. Wait, was that Philadelphia Young Playwrights or Philadelphia Dramatist Center? Oh, you know what? It might have been Philadelphia Dramatist Center. Sorry. <laughs> Although Philadelphia Young Playwrights did do a monologue series recently, and they have a podcast of their own featuring monologues by young playwrights. All right, perfectly segued around my blunder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead and pick up. So I got involved with Philly Young Playwrights when I was in eighth grade in middle school, and um, not a lot of people were into my play. It was a little murder mystery, little uh, mystery story. No murder in this one, just theft. <laughs> you know, very age appropriate. And um, a lot of my uh, classmates weren't too interested in it, but Philadelphia Young Playwrights liked it well enough to perform it at the prestigious Rittenhouse Square Barnes and Noble bookstore. Third floor, right above the cafe. (laughs) Prime real estate. I mean, it's an impressive undertaking to kind of lead with mystery and lead with... That's a a tough medium to tackle as one of your first um, (laughs) endeavors. I'm a sucker for murder mystery. Um, Going back to the theater thing, I got involved in radio drama when I was even younger than that. I listened to A Prairie Home Companion, and my favorite show was... That sounds very familiar. I'm trying to place where... Garrison Keeler. It was uh, on (laughs) NPR on Sundays, and they had one show called Guy Noir, Private Eye. It was a sort of murder mystery thing, but it also had like very funny lines like... One of the stories was about a copywriter who lost her muse. She used to be able to write great things, but now all she can think of is, try our dress. It's red. <laughs> I'm, I'm in love with the title, Guy Noir. Yes. <laughs> a dark night in a city that knows how to keep its secrets. So do you tend to, um, do you tend to lean towards intrigue or mystery, or do you branch out into other styles of writing? Mostly I do comedy, but I am branching out into uh, historical fiction, and Shoujo Don is historical fiction. It takes place during World War II. I'm also thinking about um, doing something involving um, Louis Louie, because there was this one FBI case where they were trying to figure out if um, it had offensive lyrics, because nobody could un- understand the song. Yeah. So yeah. some people would... Uh, basically spread what they thought the lyrics were, you know, and this would spread from state to state. And if they were offensive, then that was peddling smut across state lines, which is illegal. Apparently, actually, it was funny you bring that up. I uh, I think I've brought up on this podcast before. I spent a lot of my childhood listening to Simpsons commentaries. And 
there was a, there, a writer on The Simpsons who did bring that up that um, there was, I think it was his marching band was not allowed to do that song, even though those lyrics were refuted and that they're not the real lyrics. Um, I guess there was the worry that someone might think of the bad lyrics and get offended. So they would not let them perform the song, even though yeah. it was a marching band with no lyrics. That's the thing. It's amazing how entrenched the legends become, even when the truth comes out later. Oh, I mean, I can think of a million. There's so many like urban legends that have since been widely debunked. Oh yeah, <laughs> that we yeah. still think about. Um, I'm not going to bring Richard Gere up, but mm-hmm. um, <laughs> well, I guess um, why don't we segue uh, onto? Oh well, before we get into uh, Shojudan, um any do uh, we always talk about the different hats that we wear in theater, whether it's uh, uh, acting, directing, um, and how. So few, what I love the most about theater in my generation is Mm -hmm. that there are so few theater professionals that kind of stick to one hat. Do you have any other areas of theater that you've explored or that you uh, like to explore? Well, um, like I said, I did get into radio drama when I was younger and I was able to take a radio drama course for my master's degree. So I do some work on my own audio drama podcast. Oh, Cartesian Theater. It's uh, updated fairly sporadically, but I'm more involved in Philly DramaCast, the official podcast of the Philadelphia Dramatist Center. And we are releasing our first episode in June. Oh my god, that's awesome. Yeah. Is it a, is it a scripted series? or? Yep, scripted series, uh, pre-recorded in advance, but we are planning on having a live show down at the Cherry Street Pier around June as well. Interesting. I will definitely put a link to that in the description because um, oh, I'm all about uh, I'm all about promoting other artists. Thank um, you. But the main event, the reason that uh, we are talking today, is about one play of yours in particular, Shojudan, the Song of the Scouts. Uh, now this is um, wibbly wobbly, timey wimey. Uh, we are actually recording this prior to our uh, reading of it, which will be read at this same table uh, that we are recording at right now. Um, so the scene that you are about to hear, uh, has not been recorded at the time of us talking, but Mm. through the magic of editing and the passage of time, you will be hearing it momentarily. Um, so I guess I would like to just ask, can you please give us a brief description of Shojudan, the Song of the Scouts, and a little setup on the scene we're about to hear today? Well, um, like it says on the Ears website, Shojodan, the Song of the Scouts, is about three Girl Scouts at camp. Three Japanese-American Girl Scouts during World War II in a Japanese-American internment camp on American soil. So, it's based on a true story. I was browsing the Wikipedia page for Girl Scouts of America, and under the History tab, I found this picture of these Japanese-American Girl Scouts on, like, this six-stair tier. And half of them were in their uniforms, the other half were Jap were dressed up as members of a Japanese royal court, which is part of a uh, tradition they have over in Japan where they have like little dolls dressed up in those same outfits and they put them out every year on Girls' Day. So this was a celebration by the Girl Scouts of Girls' Day in in an American concentration camp for Japanese and German citizens and immigrants. Wow. Um, and what about the specific scene we're about to hear? The specific scene is, it takes place during a prom at the Federal High School in the Crystal City internment camp. 
one of the internees and also a sort of scout leader in her own regard. Her name is Phyllis, gets the idea of staging a prom not only to give the Japanese-American students one day to forget their troubles and to have a fun dance, but also to show their American captors just how American they can be, despite their, despite their heritage and despite their Japanese-American upbringing. Unfortunately, it doesn't work out so well because the Japanese-American immigrants do not like social dance, and this is basically a culmination of all the frustrations they've been having against the camp and against America in general, and even against their own uh, children, because there is this conflict between the immigrants and the generation of Japanese-Americans that were born and raised in the camp. On one hand, the, uh, the Nisei, the second generation, think that their parents are old-fashioned, they don't want to even try to fit in, but the Japanese uh, Issei, the first generation, they think that their kids are like cowardly and have no respect for their own culture. All right, let's take a listen. Scene 7. Crystal City Federal High School. Gymnasium, 8 p.m., May 1944. Streamers, balloons, paper flowers dotting the walls and ceiling. There's also a folding table with a white tablecloth. On top of it sits a punch bowl and several cups. Off stage, there's a live band playing peppy music by the Andrews sisters. At Rise, Umiko is in a simple but classy homemade dress, standing by the punch bowl. The guard leans against the wall, acting as a chaperone. He moves to the beat of the music. Phyllis, in a very flattering homemade dress, enters the stage and sees Umiko by the punch bowl. Umiko! Nice dress! Make it yourself? <laughs> Phyllis, you look amazing! I mean, look how gorgeous your dress is! I don't think I've ever seen you in anything like, well, like... Let me guess, you thought I was going to come to prom looking like somebody's mom? Well... Umiko, this is the Crystal City Federal School Prom of 44. The first prom the camps ever had, and it could be our last. I'm not coming to one of the most important events in high school dressed like somebody's mom. So how's your night? Pretty good. I like the band you got. I didn't even know my older brother could play guitar. Best you can get when you can't leave the camp. <laughs> Seen Hisa around? She's boycotting. She said she didn't want to go to an event we had to beg the camp supervisors to host. I was hoping she changed her mind. I don't think her parents would have let her. Or anyone else's. <laughs> Hope yours aren't too mad. Actually, my dad encouraged me to go. He said it'd show the Yankees how American we really were. I couldn't agree more. You were the one who planned this prom. How can you not agree more? You know what I mean. The best way to get the guards and supervisors to accept our ways is to do the same thing with theirs. The sooner they do, the quicker we can get out of here. Which reminds me, dance with anyone special? Not really. Dance with anyone at all? Not really. You can't just sit by the punch bowl waiting for prom to finish. Someone has to keep an eye on it. Besides, it gives me something to do while Tony finishes his last set. He's playing bass, right? I don't think he's going to finish until prom is over. Ask him now. I can't just pull him off stage in the middle of a song. This could be the only prom we ever have, Lumiko. Go for it. I'm not even a senior. Or a junior. It's not really a big deal if a sophomore doesn't get to dance at senior prom. You're my guest, Yumiko. You helped set this up. You earned a dance. Ask him now. You have nothing to lose. Yumiko <laughs> walks off to ask Tony to dance. The music stops. There's a pause. 
a wolf whistle and whooping, Omigo runs back to Phyllis. <laughs> he said yes. What did I tell you? He just needs someone else to take over the base, and he's ready to go. Why is he giving it to the drummer? Why is the drummer sitting behind the kit with the bass? The music starts back up. It's a slow dance, perhaps a Bing Crosby song with uncoordinated bass and drums. This will make a funny story for my future kids. It'll be a dance to remember. Now go out there and actually dance. And we're back. Um, so before we go back to this play in particular, I want to I wanna kind of jump back uh, to what you said before uh, we listened to the scene. You said that you are leaning a little more towards historical fiction. Is this your first historical fiction piece? It's my first big one, yes. Okay. I did write something while I was in graduate school about um, the way we mythologize our history, you know, speaking of urban legends and things like that. And um, it was inspired by finding out that George Washington not only never chopped down that cherry street, it was essentially a publicity stunt by this one author to try to sell more of his books. Interesting. Now that I that I didn't know because I always I knew I think we all have as a culture uh, at at some point came to the realization that that was a like a parable, but I I always assumed it was just a you know a, a story that was just about his honesty and you know j just something to paint him a positive light. I didn't realize that it was specifically made with the intent of it of people believing it. Mhm. Mm yeah, and the interesting thing about the entire book by uh, Mason Locke Weems if you'd care to look it up. I do care to look it up. <laughs> Can you say that one more time? So Mason M A S O N Locke L O C K possibly with an E. I'll put an asterisk on that. W-E-E-M-S. Um, sweet. Sorry, go on. <laughs> so uh, the interesting thing is just how much he mythologizes George Washington. Not only is Washington a figure who can do no wrong, he can also survive like things that would kill another man. There's this one chapter where he's talking about somebody firing at Washington with 17 different musket balls and none of them connect. Uh, are you familiar with um kind of off the rails real quick but that's what i do all the time on this podcast um are you familiar with the monologue uh history lesson by david Lindsay bear oh not yet yeah it's an amazing monologue and i've actually um i've actually done it at some auditions um uh even though it's it's written for a female i've reworked it into um uh into a gay man mm. uh, but it is it, it leads with a girl named maggie you know, spelling at Mount Rushmore, pointing out George Washington, talking about his seven children uh, because his wife gave birth to the first septuplets in the United States and how <laughs> some of them were sold off uh, and the other two drowned trying to retrieve his wooden teeth from the Potomac. Um, and at, at the end of the, it's all of these insane things about George Washington, and then it segues to her saying, well, for those of you just joining us on the tour, hi, my name is Maggie, and today's my last day at Mount Rushmore National Monument because there have been some cutbacks, so I've been let go. So she goes through every president and just gets, it just gets worse and worse and worse as she goes down. I think, um, I, I think she says, like, Teddy Roosevelt was, like, a pedophile, and, um, there's, like, all, all these, like, um, Oh, was it John? Um, 
she talks about how Jefferson was born with no skin from the neck down. It's <laughs> it's insane. Um, but she keeps. Um, eventually, you get <laughs> you get the um, uh, you get the realization that the person that fired her is also her ex. Oh. Um, so all comments and complaints can be directed to him. That's his office there. Um, sorry, so that's I, her yeah, revenge yeah. for being oh, yeah. cut off. It's an amazing. It's one of those things. I I have not been able to find the full monologue. It's like a. I mean, it has to be like a good like ten minute piece. Um, but I've only been able to find the first. Uh, I, I'd say like maybe first like four or five minutes. Um, which is perfect for an audition room. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but sorry, I've derailed you with my own story which i often do and i'm trying to get better at um what are um what are some of the other um uh areas of historical fiction you've uh looked into well um while i was over in england while i was uh over in england for my master's degree that's where i actually got the radio drama program from okay I decided to do a sort of two-part play. One part would be for the stage, the other part would be for the radio. And I wanted to do a sort of dissertation that combined the myths of American history and the myths of British history. Okay. A little harder for me because I wasn't born and raised English. I had to catch up on a lot of horrid history children's books just to know what I (laughs) ought to make fun of. And just to know what myths I ought to look into. Um, After... uh... After the podcast, I will have another set of books to recommend for you. Um, Ooh, thank you. Uh, the first of which is called Have a Hot Time, Hades. Um, uh, the quote-unquote true story of Greek mythology. But um, moving back to the play at hand. Um, so obviously this is based on a very specific point of American history. Not a very favorable point in American history, but mm. still a very prominent point. Um, what was it about the Japanese internment crisis that drew you to write this story? Partially, it was um, just the fact that we even had it at all, and even more so the fact that it ended with mass deportations. I've had some familiarity with the subject, but I always assumed that after they were in prison, they were sent back to the United States. But instead, most of them were sent over to Japan. And... Um, the issue with that is nobody thought that they were American enough in America, and now the Japanese think that they're not Japanese right, because, enough. because of how much time they've spent in the States. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, can you tell me how long the actual, how long the internment crisis lasted? Because I think it's something that we, as a society, all we all acknowledge that it happened and we all accept that it happened, but I think that... I think that there is kind of like a conflated thought that it was this brief little blip on the radar when it was actually slightly, right. yeah, slightly a, a pretty lengthy endeavor, if I remember correctly. Right, and um, the imprison- the internments started um, not too long after Pearl Harbor was bombed. Mm-hmm. That's when uh, the Japanese families were being investigated. That's when. The neighbors were starting to look at them suspiciously, but for the most part, the women and children were able to, like, uh, stay behind for whatever that, for however much that counted, because um, a lot of the fathers were taken away and a lot of the assets were seized, so a lot of them basically did what they could until they were forced to go into the camps themselves. And then around um, 
My play takes place in 43, 1943, mm -hmm. and that's when a lot of the Japanese Americans were funneled into Crystal City because that was the last stop before they were deported. That was like the last internment camp. And in some ways it was sort of a bright spot because it was families being reunited, but shortly after that, you know, there wasn't anything bright about it because they were being sent over to Japan and not just Japan, they were sent over to a completely destroyed Japan. I remember reading that a lot of the internees heard about Emperor Hirohito surrendering to the United States, but they had no context for it. They thought maybe this is another trick for the guards. Right, maybe right. He surrendered, but we'll come back stronger than ever. And then they went to Japan they had these women in white greeting them at the shore, basically saying, we're so sorry we've lost the war. And everything, and Hiroshima and Nagasaki were both bombed, and there was still fallout, both uh, literally and emotionally. Now, what's interesting about this play, and it, it's something that, um, what, what makes me most excited to read it, um, is I, I am a big fan, and you normally see this more in a farcical nature uh, rather than drama, but um, I am very intrigued by your cast list. Um, there are, uh, it looks like a good like 15 characters on the page, which normally would seem daunting to a director, um, but I'm looking at the character descriptions, and most of them are specifically written to be played by other characters. Um, what thought went into that? When I first wrote this, it was for the BBC's uh, international playwriting competition, and there was a limit of like, there was a limit of how many roles and actors you could do. So it forced me to write for a smaller cast, and ever since then, I've been a lot more thoughtful about how to cast in general. When I first wrote my plays, yeah. <laughs> I had giant cast lists, but eventually I learned that the Philadelphia way to do it, or even like the modern American mm -hmm. way to do it, is like. Four actors, maybe five if you're lucky. One set that never changes. Yeah. Nighttime, daytime shifts only. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sure you've looked into some of our other the pieces that we've worked on. But one, of, one of the main questions we ask every show is, is the play producible? And very rarely have we, I think, have we come across a play that we've said isn't. In fact, I don't think we've ever come across a play that we've said it's impossible to produce. But um, I have seen a lot of plays both through this program and both just through the world of theater in general that, you know, they, I personally think would work well as screenplays because of their, the number of characters and the number of locations. Um, in fact, I've seen shows like that. Um, mm. uh, I don't want to name specific examples, but I've seen some shows where there are so many scene changes that like, it's a good maybe 10 minutes added cumulatively to the end of the show just because you have to change the scene every you know 15 minutes to get through um so as as a director i respect very much that you have set this in minimal locations yeah. and and it also uh, well i would say it makes the casting a little easier but it also makes it slightly harder because you're you're looking for people who can really pull off that shift and be able to uh you know be able to flip back and forth um so i I've, I've noticed also that some people are doubled once and some people are doubled multiple times um what went into the decision of 
deciding who, well and also there's a couple characters that uh don't appear to be doubled at all right um so how did you how did you sort out which ones you were going to double and the significance of how you were pairing the characters that were doubled well, I figured that my core cast, uh, Umeko, Hisa, Phyllis, and for a while, Dr. Abe, none of them would be doubled. I eventually doubled Dr. Abe just so I could get that one scene where Phyllis comes mm-hmm. back to the camp and talks to everybody through the chain link fence. And I wanted to give the feeling that the camp would be larger than it was. And I also wanted to show this rift that's still there between like, Phyllis and Dr. Abe. Um, Dr. Abe did help Phyllis out of a very difficult place, and she did help her escape from the camp, but unfortunately they can't reconnect because they're on different sides of the fence. It's funny that you actually mention, you know, um, these plays that feel like screenplays, too, because one of the plays I'm working on takes place during a stage reading, and the person who's having his play workshopped during this fictional stage reading mm-hmm. basically writes his play as if it were a screenplay that he decided to take to the stage. It's uh, basically a script-in-hand reading of the worst play ever written. Is, is it inspired by uh, <laughs> any reality and any play you've experienced? Partially, but <laughs> mostly what it's inspired by something much more positive. I've started going to many more script-in-hand stage readings, thank you to Playpen. And I got to see just how different a stage reading is from anything else. There's this one scene where um, the woman reading the stage directions is talking about these two characters who get into a sort of manic uh, frenzy over these spelt muffins like it's so the spelt muffins are so good they actually start like um getting kind of frisky and one of them has a baby (laughs) carrier so she starts reading the stage directions and the two uh, people start acting them out everybody's laughing by the time the laughter dies down you can hear the woman reading the stage directions say, smushing the baby between the two of them, and then they start cracking up all over again. And I wanted to, like, capture that lightning, get that lightning in that bottle. What I find most admirable about that is you mentioned that it's about the worst play ever written. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the, I found the in comedy the hardest, hardest, hardest thing to do is to write something that is either intentionally boring or intentionally bad because you have to tell a very fine line so that people understand that it's intentional so i would actually really like to read that because that sounds like something that i would really be into yeah i'll send it over um but one more thing about um shoujo dan um what is what message do you want people to get from this play and ideally where would you like it to go from here I would love to develop Shoujo Don a little bit more. I know there's still a lot more work I'd like to be able to do with it and a lot more that could be done with it. I'm thinking of getting in touch with the Asian Arts Initiative, finding a uh, Japanese drama. Actually, where we, uh, we did our debut uh, Fringe show. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> they, are, they are such a wonderful group. They really are. Mm-hmm. And the main message I want to put forward is... Um, it's easy to forget like how much the Japanese were victims of prejudice because anime is a thing and you can go to a ramen restaurant like literally around the corner on Philly's campus. Uh-huh. And um, it's just a reminder that 
this has happened before. It's happening now. Don't let it happen again. It was wrong right. then. It's right. wrong now. And I would like to give a huge thank you to two internees I was actually in contact with while writing this, uh, Yai Aihara and Sumi Shimatsu. Without them, this play wouldn't be nearly as good as it is now. Uh, thank you both so much for all your help. All right. And thank you so much for sharing this story with us and with the world. I'm very excited to dive into it, and I can't wait to uh, see where it goes. I can't um, wait to hear it. So before we wrap up, um, normally I kind of wind down with like a fun theater question or like a drinking game question, but um, you've uh, you've really kind of sparked my interest in revisiting history. So if there is um, if there's any historical fiction, uh, any historical era, I mean that you could approach again by taking a character from an existing play, what would you pick? And where would you send that character? Hmm. Good question. I'm nothing if I'm not good at coming up with very easy to answer questions. I'm kind of interested in um, the the suffragist movement of um, England, partially because there was a movement to teach um, women jujitsu and self-defense. Interesting. Right, and it got fairly popular back in the day, too. I'd love to be able to do something with that. Um, But which existing character to send back? I suppose um, I would love to see Eliza Doolittle throw a man over her shoulder. I was hoping you'd get there. I was going going to say Mame, but (laughs) I would much rather Eliza. Oh, (laughs) anti-Mame is a lot of fun, too. (laughs) I bring her up a lot on this podcast because of how much I love the character and the show and all of my weird history with that show. Right. The interesting thing about um, Mame is that there is this one scene in the beginning where she's having this party and they and she asks people to take off their shoes in the Japanese style and they look at her like it's the weirdest thing they've ever been asked. <laughs> and this is well before sushi's been introduced to mm-hmm. you know the general populace. This is well before like anime, so it's strange to think that something people are just so used to like taking their shoes off before they go in is seen as strange. Well, Caitlin, thank you so, so, so much again for coming on and chatting with me today. Thanks for Um, having me, Rob. And for anyone else out there, as always, if you have a play, please, please, please send it to erpsubmissions at gmail.com. Remember, every story deserves to be heard, so join our elephant herd today. Until then, this is Robert Jean Pelleccio, signing off.